How's everybody doing this morning? Are we doing good? I'm, yeah, better than we deserve, right? That's a good answer. I'm glad that you guys are feeling good this morning. I'm going to just take a moment to be honest with you guys. I have had a week. I am exhausted right now. Not sleepy exhausted, but I am just exhausted with all of the evil that is going on in the world. And I'm just going to stand here and be transparent with you. Like, it's starting to wear on me. From the sessions that a pastor is required to sit in on when counseling is happening, to having to constantly uh, speak life when you don't feel like it sometimes, to being asked questions that I don't have the answer to because I'm not a specialist in what's going on in the world. (laughs) Uh, These things are just starting to, yeah, they're just starting to wear on me. And I just need you guys to know that. You guys need to be preloaded with the fact that I'm tired. (laughs) And who knows what I'm going to do today (laughs) as a result of it. And we need to be transparent with one another. We're a family, right? We talk a lot about family. This is Family Sunday. Why wouldn't I feel comfortable coming up here and telling my family, I'm tired of everything. (laughs) Is there anyone else in the room who at least has an idea of what it is that I'm experiencing? Praise God that I'm not alone then, right? Hallelujah. And then God so gently reminds me that in the midst of my grumbling and my complaining attitude, because that's what it is that I'm doing, I'm grumbling and I'm complaining as if He's not seated on the throne, reigning and ruling. That's Matt's attitude in the midst of what's going on. I'm grumbling and complaining, and he's like, hey, sit down and shut up and watch what I'm going to do today, Matt. And then the worship team comes up here, and they lead us in three different songs that come straight from the Psalter. We're singing the historical hymnal of Israel. These songs are thousands of years old, and we're singing them today. Right? That's something to be grateful for, that God has preserved His Word for us. And then Jade comes up here, and she says, listen to me. I spend time with your children, and I need help with your children. Therefore, volunteer to work with me one Sunday a month. And as the volunteer team grows, it will reduce in its frequency. But please help the church in what we're doing. I don't see the lack of need for volunteers. I see a woman who loves God training the next generation. That's something to be thankful for in the midst of my grumbling and complaining. Then Josh gets up here and he gives a stellar word on communion. Don't live in your shame, but focus on the greatness of God. That's what I heard this morning. Carry the greatness of God with you throughout your week. His great grace, His great mercy, His great love for you. Another thing that I'm confronted with in the midst of my grumbling and my complaining. And Matt, it's like God is going, wake up to what it is that I'm doing because I'm doing it right in front of your face and you're too busy looking at all of this. 
It's tough. It's tough because God is speaking to me in a very clear way, and sometimes I don't want to hear it. Is it okay to say that? I hope so, because that's the truth. It's not that I don't love him. It's not that I'm not loyal to him. It's not that I don't desire to serve him and to glorify him. It's that I'm exhausted right now. My wife and I are in a time of transition. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But in the midst of it, we're here, and the family is present, and God's word is going out in power. Why should I be complaining? Why should we be complaining? It's Family Sunday. I look forward to this week every single month because I get to do something that I don't often get to do, and that's spend a few moments with the kiddos. You know, so... That being said, I need all of the preschoolers and the third graders, all pre- preschool through third grade, to come up here and join me on the stage right here. Just come up and have a seat right here. It's your stage today just as much as it's my stage. Come on up. If you're, if, if you're, if you're a parent and your child wants you to join them, feel free. Just have a seat anywhere right here. Get comfortable. Yep. You guys, I want you to look at me. We don't need to necessarily worry about them. They're in the room, but right now, this is our time. All right? And we're going to take just a few moments to spend time together. I say this every month because I don't want you guys to forget it. I'm not just your parents' pastor, I'm your pastor. If you're ever at church and you have a question about the Bible, a question about something you heard someone saying. If you have a question about something that's going on in your home life, first of all, let me encourage you to talk to your mom and dad. Second of all, let me encourage you to talk to your Sunday school teachers. But third, let me remind you that I'm not off limits. I am your pastor just as much as I am their pastor. And we are a family. If you don't know me because you've never met me, my name's Matt, so now there's no more stranger danger. I'm Matt. The relationship has been officially like initiated by my introduction to you. I know I just met Isaac sitting in the back row today. It's your first time here. We're glad with you. We're glad that you're here with us, bro. It's good to see you. We hope that you come back. Yeah. So check this out, guys. Over the last eight weeks, while you guys have been downstairs with Miss Jade and her assistants, or in preschool with Jenna, or with my parents who were visiting. There's lots of different teachers here. If, if you were downstairs, while you were downstairs over the last two months, your parents and I and everyone else in the room, we've been studying the letter of 1 Peter. Raise your hand if you know what 1 Peter is. Anybody? Okay. What, give me your answer. That's correct. Give them a hand. It's a book in the Bible. It's a letter in the New Testament. This means that the parents are doing their jobs. They're training up their children. Just like the text of Scripture says, they're training up their children in the way that they should go. Right? So we've been studying this book in the Bible, the letter that Peter wrote to the church in five different Roman provinces. Now, if you were here last month, which some of you were, then you know that we learned a whole bunch of cool stuff about the Apostle Peter. Remember? You were, right? Yeah. So, today we're going to build 
on what it is that we're learning together about, first, about Peter. Now, Peter focuses on the topic of obedience in his letter a lot. Like I said, we spent two months studying the first chapter, and obedience came up three times. Raise your hand if obedience is important in your household. Is it, is it important that you are obedient to your parents? Yeah. Yeah, it is, right? When I was your age, it was super important to my mom and dad that I was obedient to them too, which means we have something in common. Yeah, sometimes I never did either. And then I got in trouble, which is why they wanted me to be obedient and not be disobedient. But it's, it's hard sometimes, right? Yeah, me too. Sometimes I still get put in timeout, but not by my parents anymore. <laughs> so obedience is important, right? Now, raise your hand if you have parents who want you to be obedient to God just as much, if not more, than they want you to be obedient to them. I think everyone should be raising their hand as they are because y'all are here in church on Sunday morning which means you know the answer is right. And your parents believe that if you're obedient to God, by default, you're going to be obedient to them. Me too. Give me five. That's right. Be obedient, not just to humans, but first and foremost to God. What's up? There's right there. You already know. You already know. You already know. You guys just have to endure a little bit more. A little bit more. All right, so check this out. We're talking about obedience, right? Everybody agrees that obedience is important? Okay. I want to talk about one form of obedience with you guys today. There are many ways to be obedient, but I want to talk to you about one way of being obedient. I'm going to turn this screen out here so that you guys can actually see this. Can you guys see that? Can everybody see that? Okay. Kind of. If you need to move this way so you can see it, that's fine. That's the best that I can do. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records the words of the Master. Who's the Master? God. What's God's name in the flesh? Jesus. That's correct. So these are the words of Jesus. Now Jesus is teaching. He's most likely sitting on a hillside, speaking to a large crowd of people outside. And the crowd of people would consist of men, women, and children just like you. And Jesus says, you, speaking to everybody, you are the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine why would we let our light shine? Jesus tells us why. So that they may see our good works. So that they may see us being obedient to the will of God. And that by seeing that, they would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Amen, right? God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to let our light shine. And one of the greatest ways to let our light shine is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody. Everybody that we know. By telling them that Jesus, before he was a human being, he was reigning and ruling and he decided that he would get off the throne and he would sacrifice some of his glory so that he could dwell among humans. He lived the life that we could never live. Raise your hand if you're perfect. Not me. Are you perfect, Isaac? 
Yeah? Wow, you are too? <laughs> so here's the deal. Jesus lived actually a perfect life. He willingly, he willingly, he didn't even fight it. He willingly laid his life down. The life that we deserve to lose, Christ laid his down so that we could take ours up and be with him. This is the good news of the gospel. What's up? You think of pizza crust? Whatever helps you word associate. <laughs> Remember Jesus. Remember, do you love pizza? Me too. Do you love Jesus? Cheese pizza. <laughs> I love pizza. Yeah, I know. I had mine when I was young. Okay, so we're talking about obedience, kiddos. We're talking about obedience. Obedience is important. And Jesus teaches us that we're supposed to let our light shine. And the best way to do that is to evangelize. So I'm going to teach you guys how to share God's Word today with something called the Wordless Book. Then I'm going to give each family one copy of the Wordless Book to take home with them so that you can share the story with your friends, with your families, and with those that you know and love. All right? So this is the Wordless Book. You know what's cool about the Wordless Book? It has no words, which means it's very easy to read. Some of us, these are our favorite kind of books. Now check this out. Gold. Gold reminds us of heaven. Heaven is where God lives. Heaven is God's dwelling place. We one day will cease to exist on this earth. And when we do, our goal is to be with God in heaven. There's only one problem. Sin. Sin has separated us from God. And we need the blood of Jesus to reconcile us back to God. And guess what? God sent his son into the world. And that man who was Jesus of Nazareth, he died. Just as, as Josh talked about today. He died. Peter writes in his letter, that it was by the precious blood of the Lamb that we were ransomed back from the power and the penalty of sin. What's up? Ransom means, means one back. God won us back. He took us out of the darkness, and because God shed his blood, we can now be washed in the blood. We can be transferred from darkness, and we can be transferred into light. When we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are made white as snow. You guys know how white the snow is on a fresh, cold Alaskan day, right? And that's a good thing, to no longer be tainted by the darkness of sin, but to be made white as snow by the blood that Jesus shed. And because we can put our faith, our confidence in what Christ did, if we choose to do that, then we can be confident that when we cease to exist in this world, we will live in heaven with God forever. Now, what I just preached to you using the wordless book, Peter calls that the seed of the gospel of God. You know, seeds, seeds, you plant seeds. Right now, I'm planting seeds. Awesome. So you know exactly what happens when you plant a seed. What happens when you plant a seed? It grows. It grows. So my job... Mustard tree. Mustard tree. Mustard tree. Mustard tree. Mustard tree. 
Yes, it does. Good job, Mom. You're doing it. So look, we're planting seeds of the gospel in your hearts today. And the goal is the green. The seeds need to grow. Grow into good trees. Good trees produce good fruit. The goal of every Christian is to continue to grow in this life until God glorifies us in the next life, okay? Sound like a plan? All right, I'm not going to test you guys, but I am going to help us remember one thing. I'm going to help us to do one thing that will help us to remember Matthew chapter 5 and the, the thing that we just learned. Who knows the song, This Little Light of Mine? You guys ever heard it? You know it? You know it? I don't know. Everybody go like this. This is your candle. Make a, make a, make a candle with your finger. Okay, so this is how the song goes. It goes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I think we can do better than that, all right? I need you guys to stand up with me, all right? Let's see if Ethan's going to get mad at me for playing his guitar today. Ah. Ah, all right. Everybody knows the words? That's right. Let me see your candles. All right. I'm proud of you guys for hanging out with me and coming up here and being brave. So here's the deal. Each family, I'm going to ask Jennifer, are you, can you take this and this and get each family one copy of the book and one copy of the script for the, the, the wordless book? And now it's candy time. Yay! All right, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So go ahead, take some and then and then uh take some and wait right here though. All right. Take two. All right. <laughs> All right. Wait here after you take your candy. Go ahead, take two. Take two. Okay, take two. Yep. I got some for you. I think you want two. Yep. Take two. Okay. Here you go. Take two. Okay. You fine? You want to take some for your mom? 
No? All right. Tried, Mom. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Miss Jen has given you guys uh, uh, one of the scripts and one of the books. Please take them home and practice with your family. Remember, you can share this with your friends when they come over for sleepovers or birthday parties. You can share this with your family on holidays. And if you're brave enough, you could take that book to school and you can share it with everyone on the playground, all right? All right. Now you guys are dismissed to go to the back with Miss Deb, who is right here. And uh, Amy, are you going to be with Miss Deb? All right. So you guys walk straight to the back of the room. Go ahead. Give them a round of applause, everybody. Okay, where are my next defenders at? I just, next defenders are staying in here, but can I get one of you to come grab these and pass, come on, Georgia. And will you pass these out to everyone who is a next defender? It's for notes for today's sermon. So you guys, just the next defenders. Just the next defenders, get one. All right, Ethan, your pick is on the slaptop cajon. Okay. See, how can I be grumbling and how can I be complaining when God gives me the opportunity to just hang out with the kids and share the gospel with them? All of us have that opportunity. Parents, that's your opportunity daily. Disciple your, ch your children. It's not difficult. You know, if you're in the room and you don't have a kid, look, if Jade can teach the kids and if I can teach the kids, anybody can do it, right, Jade? <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not like super smart, crazy, like creative individuals. We're just people who said yes. You know, well, Jade is a super smart, crazy, creative individual, and then there's me, you know, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you, Jen. <laughs> so, look, we, like I said to the kids, We've spent eight weeks in, in the first chapter of 1 Peter. Four weeks ago, we talked about a lifestyle of holiness. Three weeks ago, a lifestyle of reverence. Last week, we talked about God's standard for the church, and that's a lifestyle of love. There's no exception. God is not lowering His standard for anyone. He's calling us deeper, and He's calling us up, and He's calling us higher to this lifestyle of love. And today, we get to talk about what a transformed life looks like. Which means that God is not just going to leave you where He finds you. He's going to take you deeper on this lifelong journey as He changes you. As He reforms you. As He transforms you. It is the process of evolution for our entire existence. From the time that we come to faith in Jesus to the time that we see Him face to face and we're made like Him, we are going to be in the process of being evolved into something greater. Is that good news? Amen. I don't want to be the same man that I was yesterday, let alone the man I was 10 years ago. And Peter is writing his letter to a group of people who are scattered throughout five different Roman provinces, and all of them are suffering. All of them are suffering. The community that they have been isolated from because they have chosen to follow Christ is defaming them is making life difficult for them. 
And in the midst of it, Peter says, ah, I know what to do. I'm going to write a letter of love and a letter of encouragement and a letter of exhortation to the church who is suffering so that they don't run out of energy. It's my words that God will use to spur them on to do more good works in the midst of the, of the trials that they're facing. Are you facing a trial today? I am. I told you guys. I'm not feeling it. But God and His, gloriful, His glorified mercy and His glorified grace and His glorified love makes life worth living. Not because I'm happy about what I'm experiencing, but because I can put my eyes forward on the future inheritance. And that's Him. Getting to be with Him. And that's enough. That has to be enough for us. If that's not enough, there is nothing in this world that will ever be enough. I can promise you that. So let's just turn to the text today and let's begin to dig in. Actually, let me pray first. <laughs> I definitely don't need to be doing this on my own strength. Father, thank You for the fact that we can come to You. That we can just lay our hearts bare. God, thank You for the fact that You have created a family element and You've established a family element here in Anchorage at Anchorage Cross and Anchor Church where we can lay our hearts bare before one another and not feel ashamed about it and not feel less than anyone else in the room because of it. Thank you for giving us the good gift of a family. A family that we can lean on. A family that we can put our trust in. A family that will carry us when we are exhausted. A family that will love us, that will pray for us, and that will champion for us to endure. God, all of the things that we have in this life are a gift from a good Father who is immutable, who doesn't shift. And that's you, God, so we thank you for that and we ask your blessing on our efforts this morning as we study your word in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Peter writes in chapter 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What? This is like, he's working it out. He, he's told me that I need to be holy and now he's telling me what is the antithesis of holiness. He's told me that I need to be reverent, and now he's telling me what is the antithesis to reverence. He's told me that I need to love, and now he's showing me what is the antithesis to love. He's telling me that God wants to change me, and he's telling me right here how God wants to change me. Put it away. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Christian life is a life dominated by change. I don't know how else to say that. By proxy, our relationship with God calls us into an eternal, lifelong transformation. At least in this life. We don't know what the life to come entails, but I wouldn't be surprised if God is going to continue to change us as we learn more and more about Him for all of eternity, because in eternity we will not be omniscient. Which means we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Which means to some degree, we will be forever transforming. The Christian life is dominated by change. 
New Testament scholar Alan Stibbs writes that the new, divinely enabled, and divinely intended life of love, consequent upon being born into God's family as his children, he says this life cannot be lived unless attitudes and activities towards the brethren, which both contradict and frustrate it, are decisively renounced. Are we decisively renouncing bad behavior? Husbands, look at your wives and ask her, do I constantly strive to renounce bad behavior? And as she rolls your eyes, find yourself in good company with me. Because it's difficult. We want to, we try to, and then we don't do the very thing we want or try to do. And we're over here like, why? I can punch a hole through some drywall. But I'm afraid I'd hit a stud and break my hand. I'm smarter than that at 40, not at 21. You know, we learn things. Life dominated by change. That's the Christian life. Our lives as God's children, they cannot be lived unless attitudes and activities towards the brethren, which both contradict and frustrate it, are decisively renounced. Family, I want to know, are we decisively? Are we cognitively dismissing and renouncing bad behavior? And that's a hard question to answer, and only you hold the key to that lock. Notice that the vices which Peter chooses to list in verse 1 of chapter 2, these are not the grosser vices of paganism. There are much worse things that Peter could be talking about. But here he chooses to mention the community-destroying vices, which unfortunately are all too often tolerated and marginalized by the modern church. This list is all too often tolerated and marginalized within the modern church. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please? It seems to me that Peter is directing his audience to rid themselves. That's the literal term for put away. He's directing his audience to rid themselves of these five vices. These five vices are not exhaustive. They're only descriptive, right? All, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Rid yourself of these things. Why, Peter? Peter says they have the potential to drive a wedge between the members of God's family, thereby mocking the notion of sincere brotherly love. What did we learn last week in our study? That the goal, the standard that God has set for His family, His community, is brotherly love that springs forth from a pure heart. Brotherly love that springs forth from a pure heart. Jason and I were laughing last week going, How, Lord? By the end of the sermon, we knew exactly how. And that was even tougher being educated on how because now I'm expected to actually follow through. I can't claim ignorance. I can't claim naivete. I actually have been equipped with the truth. Now it's time to apply it. That's more difficult. Dr. Keener notes that each of the vices named are antithetical to the love expressed in the previous section of the letter, which means that malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are hostile. They're hostile. You like being, uh, you like experiencing someone or something that is hostile to you? Yeah, me neither. 
makes me angry. And being angry exhausts me, right? But these things are hostile to the very existence of sincere brotherly love. It's for this reason and others that Peter instructs his loved ones to abandon these community-destroying vices. Hear me, church. If we practice these things, we are actively tearing down our community. These are community-destroying vices. Peter's message to the church then is just as relevant today for the church. You got Christians constantly tearing one another down. They need to read this. You got Christians constantly tearing those who are not even regenerated down. They need to read this. As if those who are unregenerate even have an option. They're enslaved. And yet we berate them as if they should know better. And then when they don't do better and we get tired of berating them, which is the wrong thing to do, we aim our guns at one another and we start popping shots. Your theology sucks. Your doctrine is whack. You don't practice what you preach. What are we doing? They need to read this portion of what it is that Peter is saying. And don't get me wrong, there is always a time to speak the truth. But if you're not doing it from a foundation of love one-to-one first, before you're making it public, you yourselves are in disobedience to the text, which means you're being rebellious and defiant. The Word needs to hear this. All the YouTubers who are, ta- who are calling one another out and have zero relationship are violating the text of Scripture. Unless they consider themselves to be prophets like Isaiah. Then you can go stand on the corner. Are you a prophet like John the Baptist? Then you can go stand on the corner and you can proclaim the message to those you don't know. But if you're not a prophet that God has called to speak repentance to the world, you better check yourself. You better read how discipline is supposed to be exercised and you better submit to the text. Do it from a foundation of love or shut your mouth. Because the world is already painting a bullseye on the church because we've been really well, we've been doing a really good job of embracing these things as if they're not that bad. Well, we point the finger and they're like, did you see what she did? Did you see what he wore? Can you believe what they're into? It's ridiculous. Nobody wants to preach. I don't want to preach on a portion of Scripture like this. I'm terrible. I do all of these things daily. I was telling my wife, I can't even write this sermon, let alone preach it. Because I feel horrible. What does Peter say? He says, Put away all malice. Put away all malice? Okay, well, what is malice? That's what I want to know. Like, define what it is that I'm supposed to be putting away, Peter. What I'm supposed to be ridding myself of, Peter. You can't tell me to put this thing away, and I look at you and shake my head and be like, okay, I'll put it away. What does that mean? we got to find out what malice means. What did it mean to him, and how did his audience understand what it was that he was saying? Generally, in the Greek language, because the Bible was not written in English, generally in the Greek language, this term refers to wickedness. It's a general term for for evil depravity. But it has more specific definitions in the midst of its general understanding. Peter Davids notes that in the immediate context, it indicates ill will. Okay, 
I can understand ill will a little bit more clearly than malice. Ill will is a force that exists and functions to destroy fellowship. Community dividing sins. Ill will is a force that functions to destroy fellowship and therefore we should view it as hostile to the Christian community. If we don't like things that are hostile to us, then maybe we shouldn't be hostile toward other things. Think about it. Do unto others as what? You would have them do unto you. How come we don't put this in the backdrop as the context of our understanding and interpretation when we come to portions of the text like this? If we, like Peter, have been born again to a living hope, then we must put away all malice. Next, Peter mentions deceit. Okay, Peter wants me to rid myself of deceit. Again, I would like some context. What's the definition of deceit? Well, Dennis Edward writes that deceit involves trickery to gain a personal advantage. Nobody in here likes dealing with someone who has a reputation for being a trickster. Especially if their trickery always plays to their gaining the upper hand. Nobody likes an individual like that. We're not talking about the joker. We're talking about the intentional trickster. The manipulator. The deceiver. I bet Peter was thinking about Jacob in Genesis when he wrote this. Jacob was the deceiver. He was deceitful. What did he do? He conned his brother. Then he and his mom manipulated his blind dying father and he usurped Esau and he took an inheritance that didn't belong to him. Jacob was deceitful. Nobody raises their hand and goes, I want to be like Jacob was in his early days. Don't be deceitful. Don't do it. Peter says, cut it off. Rid yourself like a soiled garment. What's the first thing your kids want to do when they soil themselves? They want to be changed. Rid yourself of this type of behavior, Peter is saying. Change it! Following deceit, Peter mentions hypocrisy. BDAG. Remember, BDAG is our lexicon. At least it's my lexicon. It's the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. I'm going to remind you of this every time I bring it up so there's no one in the room saying, what's BDAG? Why am I expected to know that? You're not expected to know that. It's my job to communicate to you what it is. BDAG defines hypocrisy as an attempt to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes and motivations. I can't stand people like this. They want me to view them through a lens that is the antithesis to what is their real motivating behaviors. I hate being manipulated. And hypocrites are great manipulators. Why? Because they create a public impression that's at odds with their real purposes and motivations. By definition, hypocrisy is play acting. People in Hollywood get paid millions of dollars and they get awards for play acting. We don't play act in real life. We're not on the stage in real life. Relationship is at stake here. Hypocrisy is the putting on of an outward show. Listen to what William Barclay writes. He says, the hypocrite is the man or woman whose alleged Christian profession is for their own profit and prestige. 
Hmm. Not for the service and glory of Christ. Do we want to be defined by that definition? I don't. I hope that no one in here strives to be defined by that definition. Now, if I understand Barclay correctly, and I think we can understand him correctly, then he's just threaded the needle connecting malice, deceit, and hypocrisy. With that one definition, he's connected the first three vices in the list. If we call on God as Father, like Peter talks about in chapter 1, then we must put away all malice, all deceit, and all hypocrisy. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What about envy? Envy is an inward attitude that roots itself in deceit and insincerity. Envy. Thomas Schreiner states that envy is contrary to love. Well, if love is the standard that we learned God wants us to embrace last week, we definitely can't be a people who practice envy. Envy prefers the advancement of oneself to the joy of others. So envy depicts selfishness. In fact, it was envy that, ca- that was couched in deceit that functioned as one of the main motivators of our Master's crucifixion. The people who were in places of authority did not want to lose their authority, and because they thought their authority was at risk, they did what? They set up a mock trial, they falsely accused, and they had Jesus crucified. That's what envy will bring about. Death! Envy brings about death. It is the antithesis to love. For those of us who desire to be holy in all of our conduct, like Peter says in chapter 1, we must rid ourselves of envy. The last in Peter's list is slander. Slander means evil speaking. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is the kind of speech that seems to frequent our lips when its victim is never present to defend themselves. This is bad stuff. Bad stuff. Once again, William Barclay admits that few things are so attractive as hearing or repeating spicy bits of gossip. Few things in this life are so attractive. Which is strange because although everyone openly admits that gossip is wrong, Almost everybody willingly participates in it. It sucks because we suck. (laughs) Straight up. Peter is not messing around here. In this portion of the text, the Apostle Peter willingly calls a spade a spade. He says, wake up, church. You cannot embrace these types of attitudes, actions, and behaviors. These vices are sins of the mind, spirit, and heart. These vices are the sins of men and women, adults and children, the rich and the poor. These vices are non-discriminatory. It doesn't matter what class or caste you're from, they will equally affect you and all that you know and love. That's what these will do. These vices are sinful, unworthy habits and customs which the Christian must what? Put away. The Christian must rid themselves of these types of behavior. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? I need a second here. 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into what? Grow up into salvation? Isn't it enough to just be converted? Isn't it enough to hear the Gospel, answer the preacher man, walk the aisle, take a knee, make sure everybody sees, say one prayer and call it good? Isn't it enough to just begin the Christian journey? Is it? Do we long for pure spiritual milk? Do we understand that it's the consumption of this substance, according to Peter, that causes us to grow up, bringing about the consequence of salvation? It seems to me that Peter believes that growth is necessary to the ultimate reality of one's salvation. I opened with what line? The Christian life is dominated by what? Change. A synonym for change is growth. New Testament scholar Daryl Charles points out that growth is necessary to all human life. He writes that in any and all areas of human existence, Growth is not only progressive, it's incremental. And he also observes that growth is dependent on food as nourishment. That sounds like a scientific statement that Peter got right in the first century. Call me crazy. Maybe God inspired him to write something that would stand the test of time. That would be for the church then as much as it is now. Now, Alan Stibbs seems to agree with Charles, for he writes that the Christian's new God-given life needs appropriate nourishment. Our new life needs something. It needs appropriate nourishment if it is to grow up into the full enjoyment and realization of salvation. Therefore, this nourishment must be sought after. It must be delighted in with the same intense zest and active eagerness of a young infant who longs and welcomes their feeding time. AC squared. Do we crave the pure spiritual milk? Do we crave it? Can we live this life without it? Do we long for it? Like Josh was saying, are we willingly going to carry it throughout the week? Are we just going to leave it here in this room? The bodies of newborn babies have a huge demand for nourishment. Now I could just hear the, co- the current cultural like, uh, standard being like, you don't know what it's like to raise a baby because you don't have one. And you don't know what it's like to raise a baby because you can't give birth to one. So sit down and shut up. No. I would love to tell that person, make me. (laughs) Just being honest, remember I'm tired, you know, and I'm a little angry. So things like this might just slip past me because I'm not perfect. But if you, yeah, save not soft, right? That's our theme around here. But if you doubt me, just ask any mother of any newborn that's here with us today. Go beyond me and talk to the data, the group data that I've, sourced newborn babies don't care if it's four in the morning they don't care if you're in the middle of a movie you could be in line at the supermarket 
or sitting in a church service. And when that baby is hungry, it will energetically cry out because it craves the one thing that can and will nourish its body. And that is pure milk that comes from its source of life. Are we getting the picture, church, about what Peter is talking about here? Or are we just going to marginalize it so that we don't have to think about it? The words of Peter in verse 2 indicate that Christians are to actively seek rather than passively receive proper nourishment. Actively seek. Guess what, church? I can't feed you enough to sustain you. My sermon preparation is not enough to sustain me. I need to be in God's Word outside of my sermon preparation. I need to be submitting myself to men and women who are in authority who can feed me and nourish me spiritually. You guys need to feed yourselves and have sources outside of me. I hope that I can be your favorite pastor, but you can have favorite teachers and preachers that aren't me. The reason that I'd like to be your favorite pastor is because I believe you need to be in relationship with your pastor. You can't see some guy on TV and be like, that's my favorite pastor. No, he might be your favorite teacher. He might be your favorite preacher. But if he ain't doing life with you, he ain't your pastor. When a baby is hungry, they will energetically cry out, Aah! that's what it sounds like. I wonder if we ever cry out for God's Word like that. Do we? The words of 1 Peter indicate that we are to be actively seeking rather than passively receiving. Receiving what? He says the proper nourishment. And just to be clear, in the mind of the Apostle, The pure spiritual milk that feeds and nourishes the believer is the same gospel that initiated our new birth. We have to read this portion of the text in light of what it was that we learned last week. If we try to isolate this portion of the text, we will get it wrong. This needs to be read in the section of Scripture that precedes it in its light. Foundation of love that springs from a pure heart that is earnest. Okay? So that word is the word that by my obedience and submission to it, purified my soul. Yes! That's the answer. And that word is going to continue to feed and nourish you now. That's what Peter's saying. When we read this portion of the text in the greater context of the letter, it becomes absolutely clear that the living and abiding Word of God, the same news, Peter would say, the same good news that was preached to us, it's that thing that becomes the very thing that now nurtures us as we continue to grow and mature in the new life that we experience in Christ. We said we were talking about transformation today. We said that God is in the business of rescuing, redeeming, and reconciling. He's also in the business of reforming and transforming he does it by his spirit and peter says he does it by his word thomas schreiner notes that in the metaphor of the apostle this is a metaphor in the metaphor of the apostle milk becomes the very substance of life don't read this in the context of hebrews or corinthians 
where milk is somehow a like uh, basic elementary teaching. Peter's not talking about people who cannot digest the, the depth of God's Word in this context. Peter's not shaming them for only drinking milk here. He's telling them that the milk is what will sustain them. The context is different here than it is in what the other authors are writing and saying. Milk. It's the substance of life. Therefore, believers are to long for the milk of God's Word because it is essential to obtaining one's salvation in the last day. We were talking about, how do I reconcile this good works and faith? I'm like Protestant to the core, faith alone. But then I always say, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, so it's not really ever alone. But I'm a Protestant. I am. And I believe that I'm saved by faith in Jesus. But I believe that God wants more than a proclamation. He wants more than a prayer. He wants my entire life. Or He wants nothing at all. The great grace of God is not an excuse to be lazy. God's great salvation may have begun in the lives of Peter's audience, but it must not be perceived as having been fully accomplished in the simplicity of what we know to be the conversion experience of a past event. The initial experience of the new birth must be held in tension with a lifetime of disciplined devotion and faithful work. They are one in the same. Do not create a false dichotomy. You cannot have a new birth if you do not have a disciplined life. And if you do not have a disciplined life, you will never have the new birth. Don't create a false dichotomy. To God, it's one in the same. This is why I believe Peter says that by it, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Saints, in my opinion, we should never fall prey to the presumption of status. First of all, I think that lacks humility. But in my experience, it tends to be step number one in the direction of spiritual apathy. And none of us should have a desire to be spiritually apathetic. Once again, Peter is provoking his audience. Why would I say that Peter's provoking his audience? Can you guys read this for me, please? He's provoking his audience to think and to think deeply. Reading this makes me think that I can. And when I read this in the light of what precedes it, I know that I can because I have been born anew, Peter says. But however, he tells me that I have to go on longing for and growing up. Well, wait, I thought I had what I needed. No, 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 you need to long for and you need to mature. But I thought I had what I needed. Peter's like, no, 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 no. Uh, you need to grow up and you need to mature, right? Paul uses language where he's like, hey, for me to remind you of all the things that I've already taught you, it's not a chore for me. 
That's the language of Paul. Peter's doing the very same thing here. He's reminding us. And then he says this, this provocative, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What do you mean if, Peter? I'm a blood-bought saint. He's not trying to get you to fear or doubt. He's trying to get you to think. Later on, he's going to tell you to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you and to do it with gentleness and respect. He's telling you to think now. So when he tells you to be prepared to give a defense, you can already have been thinking about it. He's preparing your mind for action just like he taught us in chapter 1. Provoking the audience to think and to think deeply. The apostle's citation of the psalmist. This comes straight out of the Psalter. We sang it this morning. The apostle's citation of the psalmist provides the hearer and the reader with a graphic image of the goodness and the kindness of God. Peter says this on the heels of the milk metaphor. Peter poses the question to his audience. He says, have you? Have you really tasted that the Lord is good? If so, then it would be in your best interest to seek refuge in Him. For these are the very words of the psalmist himself. Psalm chapter 30, what is it? 34, 38, 34 verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you have tasted and seen, you would do well to take refuge in the one who provides and supplies nourishment. Don't break yourself off from him, but take refuge in the one who provides and protects. That's good advice. Coming from Peter, straight out of the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. Take refuge in the Lord. This means we have unrestricted access to Him. Anybody want unrestricted access to the Creator and Sustainer of life? I do always. I need it. This is why Peter instructs his loved ones not only to crave the presence of God, but more importantly, to crave the Word of God. So often... People walk around just wanting the presence of God. I just want the presence of God. I just want the presence of God. I just want the presence of God. You wouldn't know it if you were in it because you're divided from the Word of God. That's the problem. I just want the presence of God. You'd recognize it if you were, if you were familiar with what He communicates in His divine revelation. You're missing it because you don't really know Him. You don't want to know Him. You just want the benefits of what He has to offer. He's not a genie in a bottle. He wants relationship. Don't just crave the presence of God. Crave the Word of God. Not only do the Scriptures give us a healthy theology... They provide power to purify our souls, 1 Peter chapter 1. They supply the power to build community through love, 1 Peter chapter 1. They power and nurture our spiritual growth and development, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is why we need to continue to encourage one another to learn and live God's Word. Learn and live God's Word. Dr. Keener writes that the believers tasting it begins with one's initiation into the faith through the preaching of the Gospel. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, 24, and 25. Right there. Subsequent maturation. Our subsequent ability to mature depends on ingesting more of that same message. You want to grow? Keep eating the Word of God. Church, it, lasts, it leaves me asking one final question. Do we on a daily basis long for the Word of God? It's a tough question to answer. We want to say yes. All of us want to say yes. And then I do a quick inventory of my own life and I'm like, ha ah, ha man, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can say yes. How many of us long to live a transformed life by the Word of God? I do. Do we put the effort into pursuing God so that our relationship can give birth to a deeper transformation? That's the question. How many of us know that the Christian life is not just about the putting away of things? Yes, today's study was focused on the putting away of things. But the Christian life is just as much, if not more, about the taking up of new things. You know? Holding fast to what God has given us. New desires give birth to new habits. So when we put old ones down, guess what? God replaces them with new ones. And we need to pursue the new ones with more energy than we ever pursued the old ones. Being a Christian for 10 years, I invested so much energy in pursuing old desires, I struggle sometimes to pursue new ones because I just gravitate toward back towards what is natural. And I have to say, stop it! Turn back to God and follow Him. Don't do that thing. We cannot expect to act right until we can first think right. If we cannot expect to act right until we can first think right, there's your guide. You want to learn how to think? Read God's Word. A transformed life comes through knowing God. And I don't just mean knowing about Him. I mean actually knowing Him. Your theology will never love you back. But God will. Your theology will never love you back. But God will. God doesn't just want you to know about Him. He wants you to know Him. The Word is His clearest revelation. It's His clearest revelation of both His character and His nature. Look, it's not a mystical process pursuing God. He's given you all that you need for life and godliness. Yes, it is a spiritual process, but it's not a mystical one. All right? We don't need divination. We don't need shrooms and LSD. We don't need all these kinds of mind-altering drugs to be with God. Not one place in the text of Scripture will He say, drop some LSD and I'll reveal Myself to you. He says, no fool, I've already dwelled among you. The glory of My presence was revealed in your midst. Exodus, John's Gospel, and the future and the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't need anything more than what you've already been given. It's our responsibility to pursue God and to consume Him via His Word. 
As Christians, we have choices to make, responsibilities to make good on, and all of this implies the necessity of what? Effort and work. Effort and work grounded in faith. I don't know what else to say. So I'm not going to say anything else. We're going to pray and we're going to close it out. Stand with me, please. Ethan, you want to come on up with the worship team? Father, we thank You that we can come to You in our moments of weakness. And that in spite of our moments of weakness and the current circumstances of our life, because You actually love us, You will call us deeper. You will call us to more knowing that we feel like we can't handle anything else. Yet You will call us deeper. Father, I pray that we would strive to put off the things of the world. And I pray that we would strive to put on Christ. That we would live in the Spirit. That we would walk in the Spirit. That we would keep in step in the Spirit. That we would display the fruit of the Spirit. Because You have given us a new character and a new nature. You have given us a new heart and a new spirit. You are in the process of transforming and reforming our minds. We are without excuse. So I pray, Father, that our response to You would be one that is worthy of the call that You've placed on our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.